Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called Revealed, a study of Jesus in the Old Testament. Our hope is that our eyes will be open to see that all scripture points to Jesus. Thanks for joining us. So we are in a series called Revealed, and uh, we've been it all summer long. We'll continue it through August. And our hope in this series is that our eyes would be opened to see that all scripture points to Jesus. See that all scripture points to him. And furthermore, that our hearts might burn within us and that our faith might be strengthened, that our hearts might burn like the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 that are walking down the road and Jesus had been crucified and he rose again and he, he met them on the road and he revealed himself to them. He revealed how all scripture points to him and they said our hearts, did our hearts burn within us as we were with him? And that's our hope is that uh, as we're with him in the Old Testament, our hearts might burn, our faith might be strengthened. And as I said, we'll talk about the temple today, and uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground, but before we do that, I wonder if we pray together. Would that be all right if we pray? And then we'll dive in. So Lord, what a privilege it is to be on this side of the cross and to be able to look back at your promises and see them fulfilled. Help us to steward that privilege well. With great humility, with wonder and awe. As we open your book this morning, would you open our eyes to see how this one story points to you. Would you reveal yourself to us and strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Has anyone ever seen... One of these. My four-year-old is into these right now. He's digging them. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what it is yet. I think after this service, I might fill it all together. I thought it'd been cool if it was like a picture of Jesus's face. And then at the end, I could reveal it to you. Wouldn't that be awesome? Maybe not. Maybe not. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that together maybe afterwards. But it's a, an appropriate image uh, for us today as what we're going to be doing is connecting the dots of the temple through the scripture. And sometimes we can study the scripture and we'll take one, two, three verses and we'll mine the depths of those. And sometimes we can study a survey of scripture. Bible readings have several things like um, the Bible in 90 days versus the Bible in 90 years. I don't know. (laughs) And so we're going to do more of a Bible in 90 days approach today. And uh, what's the purpose of it all? Well, The purpose, if you're following along in your notes, the message in one sentence, the thing I hope we walk away with is that God places a premium on presence. God places a premium on presence. Presence, and I hope we'll see this, is of utmost importance to God. And I hope that as we consider this and as we look at the scriptures and we see this in the word, that we'll consider ourselves what kind of premium we place on presence. So is, is, it, is it similar? Is it in the neighborhood? Do we care about presence as much as he does? And when we talk about presence today, I want us to think about presence in terms of being present to ourselves. Like, are we present to the deepest places in ourselves, or do we just kind of drive by? And to our Father, are we present to him and, and to other people? Are we present to others? 
whether they're relatives or strangers. So let's start then with uh, the temple. What is the temple? What is the temple? And we think about temple today. I want us to think about presence, but I want us to write down something more. So we're uh, following along in, in your notes there. I want us to write down simply a dwelling for a deity. More specifically, as it regards the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, God dwelt with his people. This is the place where God dwelt with his people. God wanted to be present with his people. Now, temples were commonplace in the ancient Near East. They dotted the landscape. We have a picture of the temple of Marduk here. We can see the massive state of it. And I want us to know the religious structures like this are some of the most important and visible institutions in the biblical world. Their prominence, as we can see, their structure on the ancient landscape is a reflection of their integral role, not just in religion, but in politics and economics. They were focal. They were often put up on high mountains. And the word, or at least one of the words for temple in Hebrew is bayit. It's a secular word, again, that denotes a residence for a dwelling or a deity. Now, my question for us this morning is, where was the first temple? Where did God originally meet with his people? And in order uh, to see that, we've got to go back all the way to the beginning. We've got to go back to the beginning. So I am normally excited about being a first-hander with the word, and I love for us to be able to do that. It's going to be a little bit difficult today. I'm just going to be honest. Uh, you're welcome to open your Bibles and turn to Genesis 1, but I just want you to know I'm going to be moving throughout the whole span of Scripture. So I've done a few things, hopefully, to help you with that. I've put some resources on the back of your notes to help you. I've also put uh, a lot of the scripture references that I'm gonna be covering on the notes. So if you'd like to go back and dig later, dig deeper later, that, that you're able to do that. But I might suggest that you just let the scripture wash over you this morning as we walk uh, through the story of God. So let's go back to the beginning. And we start with Genesis 1 and verse 1. It says, it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was tohu wabohu in the Hebrew. Tohu wabohu. It was formless. It was lacking purpose. It was unproductive. It was void. It was without life. And God said, let there be. And there was light, and there was land, and there was plants, and trees, and stars. Let there be life. And throughout the creation story, we see this movement from formless, void, to full of purpose, full of meaning. God's presence brings purpose, and God's presence brings life. Now, there are a lot of different ways to look at temple throughout the scripture. But the way I wanted to do it is I want to take four words that I believe we see throughout the scriptures, four words and the first word, if you're following along in the notes, I want you to write down, is God's abundant life. God's abundant life. In the temple, in the garden, there's life. Listen to the abundant life imagery just in the creation story, just a, just a section of it. It says there's a mist going up from the land, and the mist was watering the whole face of the ground, and the Lord planted a garden in Eden. 
and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. There's vegetation sprouting up. There's plants yielding seeds. There's fruit trees bearing fruit. And the tree of life is in the center of the garden. And a river flows out that becomes four rivers that waters the banks of lands for miles and miles. The waters swarm with living creatures. The earth brought forth livestock and beasts and everything that creeps on the ground. And God said that it was good. There is abundance found in the tabernacling presence of God. God's presence overflows with life. God's presence also overflows with glory. Glory, that's the second word I want you to write down. God's glory. There's a sense of God's glory present in the creation story. Let me read Job 38.4 here. God's speaking to Job and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation of everything. And we don't know what they shouted. I wonder what it was. Scripture doesn't tell us. But I think of a few songs that like to come back throughout the scriptures. I think of Luke 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, rest. I think of Revelation 5. To him who sits on the throne, be blessing and honor and glory. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So on days one, two, and three of the creation story, we see expanses and separations. We see light and darkness. We see land and water. And days four, five, six, we see the filling of the expanses. The sun, the moon, the stars. And on day six, the apex of creation, the pinnacle, God says, let us make man. Let us make man in our image. We're the pinnacle. We're the apex of creation. And the Lord formed man and he breathed into him the breath of life. And in a sense, we are filled with his life, with his essence, with his glory, God's presence in man. Human beings made in his image. He could have made us however he wanted to make us. Couldn't he have? He made us in his image to represent him, to reign with him. So what does he do with us? See, Scripture tells us he places us in the garden. And then he splits and he says, figure it out on your own. (laughs) No. No. Genesis 3.8. God walked with man in the cool of the garden. God with us. That's the third blank I want you to fill in. God with us. The place where heaven and earth meet. Even though the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him, God makes himself known in specific ways and at specific times to his people throughout scripture. It's no different in the garden. Praise his name. He does not abandon us ever. Now, what does he do all this for? Fourth thing I want us to notice is his command. His command. And it's very apparent in the creation story, in the garden, in the original temple. In Genesis 1.28, it says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth. Fill the earth how? 
like just populate it with no purpose, live, love, be happy. He says, he breathes into us his life. He breathed into us his essence, his glory. He created us in his image as his representatives to reign with him. As a king places statues of himself throughout a kingdom so all will know who the king is. The king, the Lord, places, places living statues throughout his kingdom. Created in his image, created with his glory to represent him to all the world. So we've got a garden, a temple, a place where God dwells, where his presence is found. And there's abundant life and his glory is present and he's with his people and his people represent him. And at the end of creation story, it says, he finished all that he had done and he rested. He rested. He's the everlasting God. He doesn't get weary. Why? Why does he rest? The word for rest here is similar to the word peace or shalom or order. After everything had moved from disorder to order, after God had moved everything from no purpose to purpose, he took his rest. Where? Where did he rest? Let's look at Psalm 132 just briefly. I find it so fascinating, the richness of Scripture. Psalm 132 says, the psalmist writes, let us go to his dwelling place, which means Jerusalem. Let us go to the temple. Let us worship at his footstool, which is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, to the Holy of Holies in the temple, saying, Arise, Lord, arise and come to your resting place, Jerusalem. You and the ark of your might, may your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy, a reference to worship in the temple. For the Lord has chosen Zion, Jerusalem. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. Where does God rest? He rests in his temple. It's as if, it's as if God spent six days to create his temple. And on the seventh day, he went in and he abided. He dwelt. He rested inside of it. The glory of God come to earth to fill it with purpose, with abundant life, a place where heaven and earth meet, where man reigns with and represents God unhindered in his presence. Unhindered until the serpent. Unhindered until the tempter unhindered until the suggestion from sin that there's something better than God's presence. I think there's something better, which is a total lie. There's nothing better than the presence of the Lord and God with us. But the second the fruit is eaten, we all know the story. We have guilt. We have accusation. We have isolation. Adam and Eve hid from the presence of the Lord. They hid themselves from one another. There's no more transparency. There's no more vulnerability. We've got hindered presence. Hindered presence so much so that God had to drive them out, had to exile them from the garden lest they live forever in this hindered state. 
I came to know Christ when I was in college. And uh, among the many things that helped me get to that place, uh, one, of the, one of the biggest things <laughs> was sin. Just sin in my own heart. I was just aware that my heart was deceitful <laughs> among all things. And I, I still, to this, to this day, I'm so apparent of that. So apparent that his presence and the presence of his people are not always enough for me. Just this week, I was noticing my ability or I guess my, my lack thereof uh, to study the scripture with him. My struggle to be present with my family all the time and my inability to see things from anyone's perspective but my own. I get frustrated by the smallest things. Isn't it ridiculous? The silly things we get frustrated by. And uh, I'll have thoughts like, well, this, thro- this has been thrust upon me, this problem, but I don't have time for it. And no one understands it. And I'm on my own. And it, it's like, what is that about? And I just, I noticed it this week in me. And I, what I noticed is that there's no presence going on. Like, I'm not present to anything in the deep level in me. I'm not present to others. I'm not present to my God. When there's no presence, I, I get to this place. It's like I'm isolated. It's like I'm alone. I'm on, I'm, I'm on my own here. Nobody can help me by myself. Henry Nouwen speaks to this. He calls it suffocating loneliness. He says it's one of the most universal human experiences in our contemporary Western society and that our culture only heightens it. He describes being on a subway train in New York, people on headphones, people on cell phones. It's just kind of nobody talking. And yet we're surrounded, he says, by these advertisements, and he lists them, of young, beautiful people enjoying each other in an embrace. And playful men and women smiling at each other in fast sailboats. And proud explorers on horseback encouraging each other to take brave risks. And fearless children dancing on sunny beaches. And he writes this. The contemporary society makes us acutely aware of our own loneliness. We become increasingly aware that we are living in a world where even the most intimate relationships have become part of competition and rivalry. Why is it that even parties and friendly get-togethers can leave us empty and sad? Christmas, vacations, other holidays pass and it sets in. Perhaps, perhaps there's something that prevents us from revealing ourselves to each other, from establishing relationships that last longer than the party itself. J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings, diagnoses the roots of our longing when he says, we all long for Eden. Isn't that true? We all long for Eden, where God's presence gives life and purpose. Yet our whole nature at its best at its most humane, is soaked with a sense of exile. Feeling the weight, like Romans 8 says, of the creation groaning, groaning under the weight, longing for Eden, longing for the day when it will be put back to right, put back to right. Anybody feel that? I know I feel it daily. It's like, ugh, trudging here, ugh, longing. 
So what's to be done? Adam and Eve, exiled from the garden, sin introduced to the world, hindered presence, hindered presence. What's God going to do? Is he going to split or is he going to make a way? He's going to make a way. And the rest of scripture is the story of him making a way to come back, to be present, to be with his creation. That didn't work. I'll do this. I'll do this. I'm going to make a way. Genesis 12, he comes to Abraham. He says to Abraham, I'm with you. I'm with you, go, and you'll become a great family to bless all nations. God with us and the command and life. He comes to Isaac. Fear not, he says, Isaac, I am with you, and I will bless you, and I will multiply your offspring. The command, God with us, life. He comes to Jacob, and he says, Jacob, I'm with you. I'm with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised, until all the nations have seen my glory. Presence is important to me. I'm with you, Jacob. And all along the way, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, building altars, building altars of stone, structures of earth, marking the place where God meets with people, many sanctuaries pointing to the larger one to come, dotting the terrain as if flags in the earth, taking land for the kingdom. Just picture that. And then Moses in the burning bush, I'm with you. And then the Exodus, let my people go that they can worship me, that they can be with me. And then Mount Sinai, the moment when the family of God becomes the nation of God. I'm with you. The Ten Commandments. And then, you guys live in a tent? Make me a tent. I want to live in a tent. You live in a tent? Make me a tent. I'm with you. I'm for you. And so in Exodus 25, 8, They build them a tent. They build a tabernacle. Now, I thought it just might be helpful because I'm a visual guy, too, just to see some of this and just to give the idea of what's happening throughout these years. This is years of time here, but we've got altar here. Just an altar. Just these altars dotting the terrain. And we move then, what, to Mount Sinai, I think? Man, how cool is this? The similarities between the tabernacle, the tent that's built, and Mount Sinai. See Moses at the top in the Holy of Holies and then the Holy Place and then the rest of Israel. And then from Mount Sinai, he says, build me a tent. <laughs> build him a tent. Build him a tabernacle. And from here, we'll move on then to the temple eventually that Solomon builds. But the tabernacle, the tent, just points to the temple. And we're moving from the occasional appearance of God with altars. God would appear sometimes to the ongoing presence of God with a tabernacle. And we're moving from the unregulated presence of God to the ongoing presence of God in the tabernacle. And we see life in the tabernacle and the temple. Life. Forgiveness because there's sin now and there's death. And so as a fulfilling of the covenant God put in place, he uses a common practice that was prevalent in this time called sacrifice. Many of us know what that is. Substitution. But listen to the language. Listen to the language for this. For the life. Listen to the life imagery. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it 
I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's in the blood. It's the blood that makes atonement by the life. Life imagery. As if life is scrubbing away death and sin. Life substituting for death. We see movement from unclean to clean. Life. The priest is to sacrifice the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from their uncleanness. We see the tabernacle and the temple as the very nerve center of Israel. The center of the temple, the pinnacle of Mount Zion, the city of God, the navel of the earth. And in the center of the tabernacle itself was the place where the presence of God dwelled life. Even in the imagery, even in the imagery when the temple is built, we see gourds and open flowers carved in the cedar. We see figures of cherubim and palm trees and lilies and pomegranates and the latticework, gold and precious stones, a lampstand to represent the tree of life, the bread of presence to represent food for sustenance, life, 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 abundant. God's glory. They finished building the tent. He says, make me a tent. They make him a tent. They finish building the tent, the tabernacle. And what happens? The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled in it. Moses couldn't even go in. The glory was so thick. Now listen to this. Solomon finishes the temple. And what happens? As soon as Solomon finished his prayer of dedication, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not go in because the glory of the Lord filled the house, the glory. And God with us. I will walk among you, and I will be your God. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp, just like I walked with you in the cool of the day, Genesis 3.8, I will walk among you. And the command to fill the whole earth. Oh, again and again and again we see this. Truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, says Yahweh. I love the language in Isaiah 54, 2, 3. It's fascinating. Why choose this language other than the command to multiply and fill the earth? Listen, enlarge the place of your tent, God says to the Israelites. Like, make it bigger so there's room for more. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. And do not hold back, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess all the nations, the nations, the nations, the neighbors. If you turn over to the back of your notes, that image on the top there, we have this sense throughout Scripture that God's glory is moving out, moving out, more people knowing him from the Holy of Holies or the garden, then out to the holy place, out to Eden, then out to the outer court and the outer world so that all will know, so that all will know my name. And the question is, did the Israelites succeed? Well, got Abraham, we got this plan, we move on to Moses and Solomon, we build the temple and things are going good and all the earth will know my name. And did the Israelites fulfill that? Does, does God fulfill that through the Israelites? There's glimpses of hope, but they mess it up. 
So the prophets call him back and they mess it up. So the prophets call him back and God gives grace and the prophets call him back and call him back and call him back. Here's the plan, guys. I'm with you. And they turn their back eventually on the presence of God. They turn their back. And the presence leaves the temple. In the very center of Israel, the core of the earth, the pinnacle of Mount Zion, the hub, the city of God is destroyed in 586 BC. Wiped out, wiped off the face of the earth and the people sent to exile. And we are at the same question we were at before. What now? Where's God's presence? Where does he dwell? The people are exiled. The temple is gone. But the prophets, the prophets kept speaking of the time when the glory of Yahweh would be revealed again. And all flesh would see it. And sins would be forgiven and the people would be pardoned, and the exile would be over. The prophets declared that Babylon would be destroyed, and the ancient covenant be renewed, and the creation itself would flourish as it was always intended in the garden. And so the temple's rebuilt in Nehemiah, and the sacrifice is offered again, but it's never the same. It's never the same. And among the many things that are not the same. The presence of God does not return. The glory of God never again fills the temple. No doubt the temple retained a strong sense of memory as it does to this day, which is why devout Jews pray fervently at the Western Wall. I think we have a picture of that. And I could learn uh, from their hunger, from their desire to be near the presence of God, scribbling prayers, folding them up, pushing them into the cracks, longing for Eden, longing for the presence. But no one, no one, no rabbi, no one supposed that the glory has returned like it existed in Exodus 40 or 1 Kings 8. No one. 586 BC. 100 years pass. 200 years pass, 300 years pass, 400 plus of waiting and waiting and waiting on the prophet's promise. When? When, Lord? When will your glory return? Where have you gone? Have you left us? Have you abandoned us? Never he does. He never abandons us. And they're waiting. 2017, 19, 17, 18, 17, 17, 17, 16, 17. I mean, this is some time. I want to put John 1 up on the screen. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's read this part together. 
And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And the word for dwell here in the Greek is eskinosin. It means tabernacled. It means he tabernacled. You guys live in a tent? I'll live in a tent. He tabernacled. He took up residence among us. Prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the runway for the glory of God is coming to earth. Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus Christ was a teacher of Israel like no one had ever heard. And what was he doing? Well, he was forgiving sins. Where does that happen? In the temple. And he was healing people and cleansing them. Where does that happen? In the temple. And he was instituting communion, saying that his body and his blood would be a sacrifice. Where does that happen? In the temple. And he's revealing God's glory in the temple. And he's saying that he is the union of heaven and earth in the temple. And at his baptism, heavens are opened. And at his death, the veil is torn. And in John 2... And there's other references to this in the scripture. I can't even imagine. He walks into the temple structure because it had been rebuilt. I can't imagine to have been there. And he walks into the temple. And he turns over the money changers. And he gets out a cord of whips. And he says, why do you make my house, my father's house, a place of den and robbers? It should be a place of prayer. And the Jewish people say say to him, the, the, the Pharisees, they say, give us a sign. Give us a sign that you can do things like this. What does he say? He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And there is so much symbolism going on in this scripture. It's like hair stand on end time, man. It's crazy. And he's prophesying his death, and he's prophesying his resurrection. Later, his disciples say, oh, he meant, oh, he meant his body was the temple. And he's prophesying the destruction of the temple in AD 70 by the Romans. And he's saying, in a sense, that this system is obsolete. No more. No more temple. No more sacrifices. I love the way one scholar puts it here. To the question of where is God's presence, the New Testament writers offer an answer that is so explosive, that is so unexpected, that is so revolutionary, that it can remain entirely off the radar for modern readers. The word became flesh and lived among us, and we gazed upon his glory, glory like that of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John is saying that in Jesus, the new tabernacle, the new temple has been built, and the divine glory has returned at last. Jesus says, I am the temple. Something greater than the temple is here. I am the place where heaven meets earth. I am God with us and the fulfillment of Israel, fully revealing the heart of my Father on the cross, glorifying him in my death, crucified, lifted up to draw all nations to myself. I am the place of rest. I am peace. I am making all things new, bringing them from disorder to order, giving them purpose. I am the sacrifice, life, scrubbing away death. I am the high priest, interceding for you to the Father in my presence, rivers of living 
water will flow from your heart like they flowed from the tree of life. I am the way back. I am the timeless truth. I am the life abundant. I am that I am that I am and I reign. And if you're here today and you've got a sense of suffocating loneliness, isolation, abandonment, you gotta know that God is with us in Christ and he is for you and he is present to your situation and he's putting things back to right and he's making all things new and he wants to do the same for you. He's the hope of the earth. Now, we could just end the story there and go have a party, right? <laughs> because nobody writes a story like that but God. No one. It's, it's unheard of. It's unthinkable. It's unimaginable that the house, you remember last week we talked about it? The house God says he'll build for David, because David says, I, I want to build you a house, God. I want to build you a house. And God says, whoa, whoa, you know, Solomon's going to build me the house. And so Solomon builds the house. But what does God say? God says, I'm going to build you a house. Does he build him a house? Yeah, is it like we were thinking? No. No, he sends a human being as a house. It's like he upgrades on the promise. It's like he promises a horse and buggy, but he comes through with a race car. <laughs> Did he lie about it? No, he just fulfilled it. He, he like double, triple, quadrupled down, and he came through in this promise. He sends, he sends Jesus as the house, my temple, where my presence will dwell. But then, then what happens? Well, what does Jesus say to us? He says, you'll go, you'll go to the ends of the earth. You'll go to the ends of the earth so that all may know my name, so that all may know the hope in me, so that all may see my glory. You're going to be the temple. My church we have this treasure in jars of clay, temples of the spirit. You're going to be built up as living stones, living statues. Living stones are being built into a spiritual house, the church. God places a premium on presence. It's very, very, very important to him. He longs to be with his people. How about you? Do you long to be with them? I, I could have spun out of this in so many ways, but there's three things I want to suggest. Three things I feel like uh, I'm excited about these days. I feel like God is teaching me. Uh, the first here, if you're following along on your notes, and I may have missed a blank there, uh, we are the church, excuse me, we the church are both a living temple and individual temples is that first line. I think I missed that. But the second line here is um, present to myself present to myself. How are you at being present to yourself at the deepest level? This is a hard thing to do. Like I said earlier in the message, do you drive by or do you take time to consider what the Spirit is saying to you? How are you at taking out your own garbage? We all got to take out our own garbage, don't we? Even Jesus isn't going to take it out for us. He'll mention some things, but we've got to deal with it. How are you at receiving counsel? When a godly friend comes and, and offers some advice, some counsel to you, are you like, meh? 
Or do you consider it? Are you present to yourself, the areas that God wants to work in your life? Present to yourself with the help of the Spirit. Are you present to your Father? Are you present to the God of the universe who longs to be present to you? And when? Are you present in the morning when you roll out of bed? Are you present at night before your head hits the pillow? Are you present in the midst of your activities? Do you spend time with him? When you're with him, do you talk all the time or do you listen? Are you present to him? He longs to be present with you. And then, and then after we've done those two things, because we get it backwards so often, don't we? We're present to other things first, aren't we? And then when that doesn't work out, we go to God and we say, God, this isn't working out. These things I want to be present to, can you help me? And then we're like never present to ourselves at a deep level. That's just a confession from my own heart. <laughs> but when we get this true, and present to ourselves and present to our Father, then we'll be present to others. Are you present to others? God longs for his glory to spread to the end of the earth. When you're with others, do you look them in the eye? Do you listen? When you're having a conversation, are you thinking of the next sentence you're going to say, or do you take in what they really say? Can you sit with someone for an extended amount of time and just be with them? How are you with strangers as opposed to those you know more intimately? Are you present? I want to give us just a couple of minutes, and we'll take some space. We'll take some space to be present with the Spirit because he's here right now in the midst of us. This is what God's about. He's living and reigning and active and he's about being present and he hopefully has laid some things on your heart. So give you some time just to consider where you're at with presence and what he's saying to you.